Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This is Mike Fader. Uh, <clears throat> while we are, I suppose, rightfully, or whether we like it or not, diverted by astounding scandals and uh, also that uh, our uh, president, our demented president, is trying to start World War III in various parts of the world, uh, all this while, uh, the people he's appointed and the agencies he's reshaped are changing the entire um, structure of American government and society and culture and everything. And today we're going to talk about how the Department of the Interior, Trump's Department of the Interior, is basically trying as hard as possible to give away most of protected land and water rights to the um, gas and oil and coal interests. And uh, we have uh, somebody 
here to talk about that today, Adam Faderman. Uh, hiya. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. Um, Adam Faderman is a reporting fellow with the investigative fund at the Nation Institute, and he's the author of Fasting and Feasting, The Life of Visionary Food Writer Patience Gray. And the article that he's uh, most recently written for the Nation magazine, it's in the most recent issue, right? It's just in the last issue. That's the, right. The last issue. Uh, basically entitled, The Plot to Loot America's Wilderness. And subtitle here, a little-known bureaucrat named James Kaysen is reshaping the Department of the Interior. So to start off, as you start off in your article, who is James Kaysen? What's his background and what's his title and what's going on with him? Yeah, well, his title now is Associate Deputy Secretary at the Department of the Interior, which is <clears throat> more or less third in command. Uh, there's Deputy Secretary David Bernhardt and then, of course, Ryan Zinke at the, at the top. Uh, Kaysen is a veteran of the Department of the Interior. He got his start in the early 1980s uh, under uh, the infamous James Watt. Kaysen was at, at BLM uh, in his mid-30s. BLM uh, is, what's BLM? Sure, Bureau of Land Management. Okay. And BLM, the Department of the Interior is made up of about 10 different bureaus, including BLM, Fish and Wildlife, uh, and a handful of other uh, agencies. BLM is crucial in the oil and gas sphere because they oversee leasing on public land. What, uh, what about the leasing uh, offshore? Who's Which agency oversees that's that? That's the uh, Bureau of Ocean and, and Energy Management. Under DOI. Yeah, so that would be like BLM's counterpart for offshore so uh, activities. He's been around a long time, and he was, um, he was working under James Watt. Maybe you could refresh people's memory about James Watt. Yeah, well, Watt was a, a, a zealous property rights advocate, uh, got his uh, start at the, the uh, uh, Mountain uh, State's Legal uh, Property Rights Foundation, in the West, uh, and was a, a, you know, a very polarizing figure at the department. He didn't last that long, but, you know, essentially pushed for opening up public land to, to private interests, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is not, the, the department has, has, has long occupied this sort of delicate position where it has to uh, meet multiple use mandates for public land. But in many cases, it, it often uh, tilts toward satisfying the, the whims of industry. So Kaysen is cut from that cloth. He served under Gail Norton as well during the George W. Bush administration, uh, which in many ways, uh, you know, in some ways offers a a blueprint of, of where we're headed now in terms of their their just uh, openness to the fossil fuel industry. Let me let me stop you here for a second, because we see what's happening and you're going to explain much more about that here. Um, what is the original, when was it created, the Department of Interior created, and what was its original mandate? I mean, I would assume that they're uh, handling public lands for the sake of the public, right? Or yes, just I mean, being that's naive, their, their yeah. mission, yeah. Uh, in essence, but it's a complicated mandate because public, public use includes many different uh, elements. You know, it's not just a conservation and... Uh, resource protection, but but also uh, you know energy extraction and and all the rest. Mm. So they they do have to balance these things, and and it's uh, it's a complicated uh, task, I suppose. But you know the, the the whole idea is to achieve some sort of balance, and and there are protections in place to 
uh, allow for that to happen. And, and what's, what's interesting now is that we are seeing the uh, gutting of, of those very basic protections, both regulations and just policy guidance to uh, enable uh, oil and gas development on public land. So we're seeing a, a really stark shift in the department's uh, priorities and at the same time uh, undermining of the department's regulatory authority to to basically put a leash on the industry in terms of you know fracking and 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 other uh, other aspects of the oil and gas industry. I mean, two of the key rules that there's a, there was a BLM fracking rule mm-hmm. in the works, and and then there's this this methane rule that waste a uh, methane emissions rule that's gotten a bit more attention. Both have been uh, repealed or are in the process of being repealed by the department and and. They can do, uh, they can do that on their own without any review by Congress. They don't need right. They're, they're, they are obligated to uh, have a public comment period, and, and there's a formal process for repealing a regulation unless they go through the Congressional Review Act. But the window for that to happen has has already passed. Uh, it's but a, yeah, tremendous yeah, amount I of think, it's a tremendous amount of power they have. That's almost like. It's almost like the executive branch, which has sort of a, you know gone too far with its power. I mean, it, it, I know, I'm making a speech here. It, it just uh, amazes me. But let's get let's get back into the progression of this article here. Um, there was a meeting that you talk about that happened um, last um, March, I think it was, at DOI. Maybe you could explain what happened there a little bit and what that meant. Yeah. So that March meeting, <laughs> I mean. It marked the beginning of a dramatic uh, reorganization of the department. And, and at that meeting, James Kaysen, who, who at the time was acting as, as deputy secretary uh, right under Zinke, uh, he, he, he gathered senior level uh, employees, BLM, Bureau of Land Management employees, and, and basically in, in front of this group of people announced that uh, the acting director, a, a woman named Kristen Bale, was being uh, pushed aside and, and replaced by... Uh, uh, an individual named Mike Ned, who his, his background is in the oil and gas leasing uh, hmm. world, and and it was a clear sign that the the department's priorities were were changing. And the way in which Kaysen handled the meeting, from according to people I spoke to who were present, uh, was deeply uh, disturbing um, and unprofessional, and uh, you know, kind of set this tone that you know. <laughs> um, Things are changing. Uh, you have to get in line, and, and this is the way that we're going to be doing business. Of course, a few months later, the department announced that it would be reassigning uh, more than two dozen senior executive service employees in, in what has been described as a kind of unprecedented uh, shuffling around of, of 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 these executive employees. This uh, this uh, this thing that happened. Um, I think I guess it was in June where everybody was right. shift, shifted around and <clears throat> maybe some a lot of people resigned. I think, but. Um, you say, hearing your article here, the Office of the Inspector General is investigating how the transfers were determined. Inspector General, that's an independent, uh, Inspector General of DOI or? Oh, I, right, of DOI. I think every federal agency has their own office of Inspector General, essentially, to investigate any kind of wrongdoing. Uh, mm-hmm. It has to rise to a certain level of, of I guess, uh, seriousness. But but the the Congress asked the OIG to investigate what was going on here, in part because uh, one of the employees who was reassigned blew the whistle. And this is a climate scientist named Joel Clement. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he was moved from his uh, senior level policy advising position on climate change to an accounting office that that collects royalties from the fossil fuel industry. Mm. Uh, and he had been raising the alarm about 
native communities in Alaska who are at risk of, um, you know, coastal erosion and, and essentially losing their their villages uh, because of the impacts of climate change. And he he alleges that his reassignment was politically motivated, uh, and he has since resigned. So there, the OIG is looking at you know I think the whole uh, how the decisions were made and and whether they were within the you know legal uh, bounds of the. Senior executive service. It is. It is like frustrating. So much uh, of what goes on these days with all the executive power and the fact that Trump can sort of do whatever he likes in almost any way without any kind of halt on him. Um, this is this is reflected very much in this article you wrote in the, about the Department of the Interior. Um, tell me how much control. I mean, what do they control? What is the Department of it? So people understand how yeah. deep and wide this is. What what well, do they actually control? They control a, a huge amount of of the country's uh, land. I mean, one uh, one fifth of, of 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 the land is uh, managed by the Department of the Interior. They're sometimes described as the country's largest landowner, uh, hmm. landlord. Excuse me. Uh, and and of course, on that on much of that public land, they manage grazing, oil and gas leasing, uh, national parks and national monuments. Uh, uh, I mean, the Fish and Wildlife Service plays an incredibly important role in terms of uh, um, protecting endangered and threatened species. Uh, you know, they, they play a crucial role. And the National Park Service, of course, uh, you know, they, they touch on every aspect of public lands management in this country. And, and including the offshore drilling. Um... Off, yes. And there are interesting things happening in that uh, bureau as well. After the the BP uh, catastrophe in 2010, the Obama administration decided to merge the the two agencies, one that that manages the leasing process and the other that that does uh, regulatory enforcement. Um, and excuse me, d- decided to to split them apart so that there was yeah. no conflict there. And there's a lot of discussion now about whether those two agencies are going to be sort of reintegrated and some of the the safeguards and protections that were implemented during the Obama era, you know. Uh, stripped away. What, what so. about uh, the agency, uh, I forget what it used to be called, uh, but uh, I don't know what it's called now, uh, the agency that manages or oversees or in some way coordinates uh, whatever uh, land or mineral rights American Indians have. Right. Well, so the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs is another bureau within the department, uh, and then they're, uh, they manage uh, native, native lands uh, within, you know, sort of under the rubric of, of the department. Uh, and of course, uh, oil and gas development on, on native lands is, is a, a, a big issue right now, uh, as well. And, and in fact, in those reassignments, one of the, the little reported, uh, uh, things about that is that there, there was a massive reshuffling of, of, uh, employees at the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So there's something larger going on there that really hasn't been, um, explored. Hmm. Did you ever work uh, with or for the DOI in any way? No, no, I have not. Just, <clears throat> just know a lot about it, right? Well, I've been reporting on it primarily for for the past year or so. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, the, getting back to Kaysen, he seems to be so key. According to your article, he's so key. It's like a key element in all this restructuring. Even though he's what third in line, yeah. I think you said at the DOI, but. Yeah. He's, he's really sort of in charge of all this shifting and um, bottom line is uh, handing over uh, huge amounts of uh, rights for drilling and 
mining and mineral exploration to uh, to to the industries. Has has he ever been a lobbyist, or has he ever, let's say, gone to made it very public that he has a you know a relationship with uh, people in the industry, or has he gone to like conferences or things like that? Uh- He's been to a couple of conferences since uh, being appointed to this this position in the Trump administration. Uh, but w- one of the interesting things about Kaysen is that he's been a, a very uh, behind-the-scenes kind of figure throughout his career. He's never really sought the limelight, and, and we don't know that much about his record. He's never worked as a registered lobbyist. He has done consulting work for Booz Allen Hamilton and another Washington, D.C.-based consulting firm and, and presumably has uh, deep connections to to both industry and, and obviously uh, government. Um, but he, he's he's a, a, a highly effective administrator. He, he, he gets, you know, he's able to implement the radical agendas of uh, the, the interior secretaries uh, under whom he works. And I mean, one one meeting that I, I talk about in the story is a, a, a uh, summit in Colorado, the Colorado Oil and Gas Association had a, a conference in, in August, and Kaysen uh, appeared alongside Gail Norton, who had been uh, Interior Secretary under George W. Bush, also very controversial. And Kay- it was just very interesting to see Kaysen and, and his former boss, uh, Gail Norton, uh, you know, standing side by side in front of this room full of oil and gas executives and essentially telling them, you know, uh, you guys are very important to the to this administration, and here's what we're going to do to help you, you know, achieve your your goals. Have any of these people that <clears throat> that Kate, that you refer to, James Watt or Gail Norton or Kaysen or other people like this of their persuasion in the Department of Interior and other agencies, have they ever actually done something that was later found to be completely illegal? You know, like for instance, uh, giving away land without a review or giving away land where. Uh, let's say the companies benefited in some outrageous way, made a profit that they shouldn't have. Is there anything like that? Well, Kaysen, yes. In fact, so in 1989, Kaysen was uh, nominated to serve in the Department of Agriculture under George H.W. Bush in a essentially a, in a stewardship position, managing uh, farming and, and uh, conservation land in the Department of Agriculture. So when he was nominated for that position, uh, there were confirmation hearings and the, the rap sheet on him was extensive and, and uncovered a number of uh, instances in which he, he tried to bury a scientific uh, report on the uh, fate of the spotted owl, uh, attempts to transfer land to oil and gas companies at, at uh, below market value. Hmm. Um, you know, a number of the things that you just mentioned, he was in the middle of and instrumental in. And ultimately, he had to withdraw his name because... Uh, he wouldn't have had the support to to secure that nomination, which was quite unusual for that position because it wasn't it wasn't a high profile thing, and uh, it was an embarrassment for the George H. W. Bush administration. And uh, Kaysen has never had to go through that process again, presumably because he he wouldn't uh, make it through to the other side. Well, so there he is, and he's been around for a long time now. He's been around for, let's say, what, more than 30, 35 years, and he's obviously considered a reliable corporate Republican soldier, right? So he just he just yeah. prevails. He just yes. you know, perseveres. Um, yes. So right now, um, 
I wanted to ask you a question about uh, the the current uh, <laughs> Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke. Maybe you could tell people a little bit about him. I mean, we were familiar with him when he was nominated and all this stuff that he was done, that he's done and was doing. But he comes in there yeah. um, with uh, an overwhelming uh, pro-business attitude, right? Well, yes and no. You know, he was one of the few uh, cabinet uh, appointees, nominees who who t- who had more bipart- bipartisan support. He seemed, at least on the the surface, to be somewhat more moderate than you know someone like uh, Scott Pruitt or um, uh, Rex Tillerson. Mm-hmm. But but that but that has proven to be a a, a mirage. And uh, you know Zinke, as he as he likes to to point out whenever he can, a former Navy SEAL, he served uh, as a Montana congressman for. Um, uh, for one term, and, and then, of course, uh, quickly appointed to to serve at the Department of the Interior. He doesn't have any experience managing such a large organization. Uh, you know, I guess his his only qualification, according to this administration, is that he's you know he's he's from the West, <laughs> um, and, and the presume and because of that, uh, understands the the complexity complexities of of some of these issues, uh, but. You know, we've seen what his his uh, uh, policy positions are. We, we've seen how he approaches public lands issues, and and you know he's serving uh, he's serving Trump. And uh, wasn't you know, wasn't he's, Z- been, a, he's been a big, big big disappointment even to the groups that had supported him, including you know hunting and fishing groups. Or was there was a lot of support among those constituencies who um, were hoping that that he would, you know. Be, be a, a, a steward of, of the uh, country's um, natural resources. Well, wasn't wasn't Zinke uh, one of the people who was uh, caught uh, accepting uh, corporate money for a trip? He's in a lot of hot water. I mean, there's a new story out today at Politico on his use of uh, gar- uh, helicopters to get to, you know, uh, events and programming that that you know he shouldn't be using that kind of. <laughs> um, uh, you know, taxpayer-funded transport for there are all kinds of uh, investigations. Some, some which have stalled because uh, lack of cooperation. You know, he he was allegedly uh, tried to sort of uh, strong-arm uh, Lisa Murkowski on the healthcare vote, mm-hmm. and there was an investigate brief investigation into that, but but her office refused to cooperate, so it didn't get anywhere. <clears throat> His travel has 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 been the, the biggest issue. In terms of uh, ethical issues surrounding his mixing of, of uh, you know, personal political campaigning with his his role as uh, uh, interior secretary. Well, is he in any jeopardy of uh, of uh, not? Well, not, we, I mean, we saw Tom Price resign because of his you know travel, right? Uh, whatever extravagances. So I don't know. <laughs> He's been a very loyal Trump supporter. He, he doesn't seem to be in uh he, he doesn't seem to be on the verge of, of resigning yet so i don't know it kind of depends on where some of these investigations go and then whether there are any you know bombshells out there waiting to to drop well you mentioned uh enforcing trump's policy before trump has a policy uh which he calls not energy independence but energy dominance can you explain that yeah well that's their their way of describing what they they want to do uh and it's just an all-out um, kind of race to the bottom to extract every uh, last drop of oil and gas and coal from 
uh, from the country. And I think they, they see it as a, a way of flexing their, their power, uh, perhaps uh, on the geopolitical stage. Uh, you know, it's one thing to, to talk about it, but, and, and another to, to sort of see how it's playing out. You know, the, the price of oil has remained quite uh, relatively low. So mm-hmm. the industry's interest in, in pursuing new oil and gas reserves has been pretty tepid thus far. And, and of course, the coal industry is, is on life support. So, um, <laughs> are there, the, uh, are there, are there, um, massive deposits of coal on public lands that could be exploited if uh, Trump and his people get through, you know, manage to push it through? There are, I, you know, there's some 40% of the country's coal comes from a, a place in Wyoming called the uh, powder river, uh, powder river basin. Uh, and there's currently coal mining there and, and there is potential for more. But what we're seeing actually is that coal companies are, are starting to kind of pull back because the economics just are not, um, in their favor in terms of developing new, new coal mines. Now, I saw, I saw an article just briefly the other day, I think it was somewhere on the internet that, uh, maybe I got this wrong, that, uh, the number of people employed by the solar energy industry is now larger than the number of people employed by the coal mining industry. Maybe I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. I've seen those figures too. I haven't checked and in, looked into it, but but it 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 wouldn't surprise me. The the coal uh, mining sector, in terms of uh, how many people it employs, is is quite small. I mean, their their you know political influence is completely disproportionate to their actual you know numbers. Mm-hmm. They they stand in for something larger for this administration and have been exploited. Well, let me, let me uh, read one paragraph in your article here, because these things keep uh, impressing me in the most awful way. I mean, it says here, in December, the Bureau of Land Management will offer approximately 10.3 million acres of land in Alaska's National Petroleum Reserve for oil and gas leasing. And next spring... The department will hold the largest oil and gas lease sale in the country's history when it auctions off auctions off some two some seventy seven million acres of offshore reserves in the Gulf of Mexico. When you say au- auctions mm. off, that means uh, the right to drill, not that they would own anything, right? Exactly. They 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 sell the leases uh, to the the mineral rights and. It doesn't mean that companies are going to buy them, but they have the opportunity. And and in a market like the the current one, um, prices are are very low. So so companies may be tempted to just buy up as much uh, as uh, you know as much of this uh, land as they possibly can, and and wait for prices to rise and then you know develop it. Uh, the 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 sale in Alaska just uh, happened this week, and and there there were just a small number of bids in the, the petroleum reserve. Uh, but the administration, you know, that's their their approach is to put up as much as they possibly can. There's a lease sale next week in Nevada where they're they're offering up 400, almost 400,000 acres. And this is in a state that the industry has expressed uh, very little interest in exploring. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, there's the other issue is that this is expensive. This this costs money and, and, and it's time and resources to do this. So, it, you know, is this a smart thing to be doing, to be offering up all of this land? And, uh, you know, it requires extensive analysis and, mm-hmm. and staff time. So Zinke talks a lot about efficiency and, and all the rest. But this, this seems to be a pretty 
poor use of the department's resources at this uh, at this time. Um, if you just tuned in, we're uh, talking to Adam Federman, who is, uh, am I saying that right? Because that's my name, too, Fader. So Federman, Federman. Federman, see, I got, all right. Mine's, mine's pronounced Fader, so I took it for granted. Okay, we're talking to Adam Federman, who is a reporting fellow with the Investigative Fund at the Nation Institute, and he is the author of Fasting and Feasting, The Life of Visionary Food Writer, Patients great. Now, earlier you mentioned that the Department of the Interior has to balance various priorities and keep it in balance. Um, at the same time that they're opening up all this land and all this water to drilling, mining, exploration, and everything else, uh, inevitably, of course, and it probably already does for what they've done, uh, is going to cause uh, massive pollution or has the possibility of massive air pollution, water pollution, and other kinds of damage. So, how are they dealing with that balance of priorities? Well, they're dealing with it by, uh, you know, gutting the existing <clears throat> uh, rules and regulations and policy guidance and repealing a number of, of what were, at least in the environmental community, perceived as, as basic common sense measures to uh, protect the environment. I mean, earlier I mentioned the uh, the fracking rule. So, BLM spent uh, pro probably more than five years developing this this rule that essentially just updated the uh, department's authority to regulate fracking on public land, which, as your listeners probably know, I mean, fracking has, has uh, become a pretty big deal in the last decade. So the, the technology has changed. Um, issues surrounding water contamination and water use are, are uh, controversial and important. So the BLM's fracking rule has not been updated since the uh, you know the, the mid to late 1980s, and it's completely um, it's essentially toothless because of that. So this was an attempt to 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 get uh, to, to get up to speed. So that rule has been uh, repealed. There's the the emissions rule that I mentioned. There was a royalty valuation rule that would have closed a loophole that allows coal companies to undervalue uh, the price of of coal that they calculate royalties on. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. I could spend 15 mm -hmm. minutes discussing the rules and regulations that they're trying to roll back. In October, they published a report on impediments to the energy industry that catalogs all, a, a whole raft of, of rules and regulations that they're in the process of repealing and then outlines a number of policy guidance measures, which are kind of, you know, they're, they, don't, they're not, they, don't, they don't have the same status as a, a regulation, but they, they can be quite critical in terms of public land planning. So uh, once, once again, um, you, you talk about all these uh, rules and regulations they're repealing uh, to the uh, detriment of the environment and most of the people who live in the country ultimately. They can, once again, I know you said this a couple of times, already, they can just do this themselves, right? There's no review, there's nothing. Well, the rules and to repeal a regulation, they do have to, to list it in the Federal Register, and there is a public comment period, and they're supposed to take those comments into consideration when they draft you know, their revised rule or, or, or a new rule. So there is a process. Uh, in some cases, this administration, well, certainly this administration has not always followed that process. The Department of the Interior is facing uh, several legal challenges uh, for its uh, uh, handling of, of of some of these rules in terms of how they've tried to roll them back, uh, and those are, are currently being litigated. Uh, but they, you know, they they they've been quite effective uh, in in 
you know, turning back the clock. Mm. Well, um, the um, so they're doing all this and they're repeal. They're you know turning back uh, regulations and getting rid of rules. Also, this includes uh, any reference to climate change, like on their website and into inside the department itself, right? Well, and that's the elephant in the room. I mean, here we are at a at a moment in in human history where the question of whether we should be pursuing uh, fossil fuel development at all is is a very serious one. Uh, and 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 this administration is you know they're going gangbusters after this stuff, locking in uh, future uh, reserves, you know, because even if they these companies snatch up these uh, these leases, it doesn't mean they're going to develop them tomorrow. It may be twenty, thirty years from now. Uh, so the department has, uh, you know, just uh, just as every other federal agency has disregarded the science of of climate change and the the impacts and threat that climate change poses. Department of Interior uh, has done the same. You know, I, I did a story on on the department's uh, five-year strategic plan, uh, and it doesn't mention climate change at all, uh, which was a stark uh, change from the previous strategic plan, which you know mentioned it more than you know forty times or something like that. Uh, so they've made a, a complete uh, uh, one hundred and eighty on climate change and. Uh, the, the Department of the Interior really, on a very practical level, has to contend with climate change in, in much of what they do. So, mm-hmm. you know, it'll be interesting to see how they how they get around that one. Uh, did the Koch brothers have um, pipelines or refineries or anything like that on public lands? That's a great question. I'm I don't really feel qualified to answer it. I mean, we know that the Koch brothers are are deeply involved in in the petrochemical industry. In terms of public lands, well, you know, you raised the, the question of, of pipeline mm-hmm. uh, infrastructure. I mean, that's a big deal right now for the industry. Uh, they, they, you know, they, 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 they have a need to get uh, their, their fuel to uh, refineries, processing plants, uh, and the, the capacity just isn't there. So uh, facilitating a pipeline development is, is high on their list of, of things to accomplish. The Koch brothers, incidentally, do have several or at least a, a, a small number of people at the department with, uh, you know, who, who have either worked for them or, or have some kind of connection uh, um, to them. So, um, Well, here's a question that uh, I'm always asking people when they come up with a report like this. And this is an extensive, in-depth report that I think everybody should read. And once again, it's called The Plot to Loot America's Wilderness. And this is um, The Nation magazine. Um, and there's an increased feeling, I'm sure everybody feels it, uh, who, who is experiencing or just even reading or watching what Trump is doing with executive orders and what's happening with the government and the Republicans' taxation, everything else, and all these um, agencies that are doing whatever they like. What can we do? I mean, we, we, we sit and yeah. watch this uh, with mm. a feeling of increasing helplessness. I mean, what can an average citizen do, really? Yeah, I, I I get this question a lot. And I bet, yeah. I I think, look, the much of what is happening is being challenged in the courts, and and with a certain degree of success. So a lot of the changes that are taking place um, have not crossed the finish line. I mean, they, they're they're being challenged, and they they could uh, ultimately be um, defeated. So I think it's important to to keep that in mind mm-hmm. first of all. And to put pressure on, I mean, on your your 
your elected officials. Tell them that that they, that public lands matter, and that if they don't uh, hear that message, that that they'll pay a price. You know, with the monuments thing, uh, the department received thousands, if not millions, of comments, and and the over, overwhelming majority were in favor of maintaining the the monument status. Of course, the department didn't take that into account. Uh, so, the 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 public comment process, I think, is going to become pretty discouraging for for most people in this uh, in this current climate. Mm. So, but you've got to put pressure on somewhere, and, can, and can, I think probably at the local level is is the best place. You know, in Utah, for example, the, the outdoor retail industry has has pulled this major trade show from the state, which was a, a huge uh, revenue generator. So. Those kinds of things, I think, will ultimately have an impact. Can you can you recommend any uh, legal group or organization that is using uh, the courts to uh, to uh, stop all this? Well, there are many. Uh, Center for Biological Diversity is one of the one of the big ones. Uh, but uh, in the West, you know, there's well, the uh, Wilderness Society. Uh, there there are a bunch who, mm. who are watching this stuff closely and uh, you know jumping. Uh, jumping in <laughs> as soon as the uh, all right, and then the midterm elections are coming up, which is everybody's uh, cry or thought of hope. Well, so. and you know we've seen public lands become uh, a pretty a prominent issue in a way that that they haven't been in a long time. I think so. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right, Adam Fetterman, I appreciate your coming on and staying on to uh, to talk about this stuff. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thank you. Uh, this is Mike Fader, and uh, after this, we'll be back.
Yeah, this land is your land, and this land is my land. I hope so. I hope so. Because they're giving it all away to the very wrong people. Wrongest people. All right, a screeching turn here. A sudden, um, you know, turn to the left or the right or up or down. Exactly four years ago on this day, um, exactly four years ago, um, I, I almost died from uh, a burst aorta. And uh, I might talk a little bit. Of, I want to pay attention to that. It was sort of like a ritual nod to the cosmos. And, now, and I can understand that this is not your idea of fun. So if you want to stop listening, feel free, of course. And um, I probably would. <laughs> Except that it's something that I need to acknowledge. It's like a, a ritual every year every year on the, on the occasion of this uh, terrible event. And on Sunday morning, it was December 8th, four, Sunday morning, four years ago, I was walking, as usual, uh, on the weekends with my wife in Riverside Park, a very, very beautiful place. Kind of let go now because of budget problems like everything else, but still a wonderful refuge from all the craziness of Manhattan, and we're walking along. But um, So I'm walking, and, and I'm talking to her, talking, talking. I'd done my show on Sirius XM the night before. Talking, talking, too much, as usual, and my kind of slightly manic breathless way, which you may be familiar with if you've listened to me over the years. And uh, I was talking about the anniversary of, uh, actually, of uh, Pearl Harbor, where I'd done my show about that. And as I'm walking along, I feel a sudden sinking feeling, like a sinking emptiness is the only way I can put it. No pain. But I knew it had something to do with my heart because it was right in the middle of my chest. But it felt like a sudden emptiness, like somebody had just sort of scooped something out and my legs gave out, and I fell down, and I said to my wife, it's my heart. And I remember trying to pull myself up and sit on a bench, but I couldn't do it. And I was uh, confused. I had no idea what was going on. I mean, and I, I, the only memory I have outside of my own sort of, you know, bunker, sudden bunker mentality where everything closed in on me was a memory of my wife's face. And she had this horrible, anguished look on her face. And she went over to some people, and she said something. And I think she was asking about a phone. And then I blacked out. <clears throat> and the next thing I, I, I'm aware of is the sound of an ambulance. And then I woke up again. I blacked out again. And I found myself being loaded into an ambulance. And I passed out again. And then I woke up in a room lying flat on my back on a table. It was, uh, I mean, it was certainly it was the emergency room of a, of a hospital. And my wife and another woman are standing over me. And the woman says, you've had a rupture in your aorta. Do you, we have to operate on you as soon as possible or you'll die. It's not a movie. It's not television. It's me this is happening to, right? And she says, do you agree to that? Which I thought was odd, her asking me, do I agree to it? I thought they would have just done it, right? I mean, if I'm not, I was barely conscious and I had no idea what was really happening. I thought my wife would, they would ask my wife and they would have just done it. <clears throat> and I said, um, okay. Um, I guess, uh, well, I was awake and I appeared to be rational, which is something which has deceived people for most of my life. I appear to be rational sometimes. Um, <clears throat> so the decision was mine. And I looked at my wife and her face is filled with fear and love. And I thought, okay, they can operate and they can save me. In a couple of weeks, I'll be out of the hospital and be my old self. I've been, you know, I've been... I've been in hospitals before where I had various procedures, which are not anything like this, of course, ambulatory procedures where they put you out. I've been in hospitals a couple of times where I stayed longer, but they put you out. You go out. In fact, I sort of almost liked it. 
you know, you know, it was a relief from my crazy nonstop stuff that goes on in my brain and my super consciousness and hypervigilance. They put me out and I see these people are standing over me and they're competent people and I wake up, you know, and they operated on your knee or they did a cataract surgery or something and, they, and then you go home. And I thought, well, I'm not going to go right home, but maybe uh, in a couple of weeks I'll be out and I'll just be like I, I was before. And then there was this uh, feeling of, uh, she's talking about die. I mean, this all passed through my head really quickly, right? This feeling of, uh, I had a feeling when she's talking to me here and she says, you might die and I'm lying there. I did not feel fear. I did not feel any fear. And uh, the only fear that I understood was her intensity and my wife's face, right? And But I felt a kind of passive calm, an odd calm. But it wasn't the calm of facing death and serenity, you know, with serenity and acceptance. It wasn't that. It wasn't because I, I'm an accomplished Buddhist master and, I'm, and I've faced death so many times before. Actually, I have a couple of times, but uh, not on purpose. <clears throat> um, it's, so it's not, I did not develop uh, at this point a tremendous acceptance of life and death and moving onward and, you know. Um, but I never really seriously believed, and maybe it's still that way now, even though I've been through all of this and more, and I'm old now. Uh, I never really believed, um, like I say, you know, that actually I've faced death a couple of times before, I almost died, that I could actually die. That can't happen to me, right? This can't be the end of me. Could this be the end of Rico? No, absolutely not. And it's not like I believed in a heaven with rewards, you know, eternal bliss, uh, whatever you get when you go to heaven. Um, I wish I did, <clears throat> but I didn't, but I don't. So I think I wasn't afraid because uh, I was afraid because I was sure they would save me. I wasn't afraid because I was absolutely sure that these people, like every other doctor I had ever been to, would uh, do what they had to do and I would be okay. I just took it for granted. And, um, and the other reason I wasn't afraid was because I am not really rational. I live half in another world. I spent too much time when I was a kid uh, reading about um, <clears throat> fantasy books, science fiction fantasy where superhuman heroes uh, overcame death all the time. And I read a lot of mythology. So much mythology. I, I, I had what, I, what you would almost call myth poisoning that I was, I was sort of half in this world and half in another. And I sort of believed that, um, that I could overcome and I read all these stories about heroes overcoming certain death and, and mythology where regular people become gods or take on the aspects of gods. And I thought, well, you know, I, this, won't, this can't happen to me. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to rise above this. I can't die. And so I guess you could say I've always been steeped in what's called magical thinking, that by imagining something hard enough, I could transcend me. I could transcend the reality of things, that I could even soar above or outwit death, right? And um, she asked me again the second time because all this is passing through my head. She said, you know, oh, we, have to, we have to have an answer right away. Do you want us to operate? And I said, yes. And I passed out again. And the next thing I knew, I wake up and I hear people's voices. <clears throat> um, and it was always sort of like in a movie, right? Like, you know, in a movie, sometimes you've seen this scene a million times where somebody's been in a coma. I had been in a coma. And people say, I think he's waking up. And people run around. I heard people say, I heard voices, although my eyes were still closed, say, he's waking up. And I opened my eyes, and there were a couple of people hovering over me, and my wife was there. And um, they're all looking immensely relieved. 
And I had been in a coma for three days. And later my wife told me they gave me a 50-50 chance of survival. And um, now the pain comes, right? Lying in the, in the ICU, um, there was a tremendous amount of pain. They gave me painkillers, but it was never enough. And there was this giant scar that ran the length of my chest up and down and sideways. They just cracked me open like a lobster, right? Put in all kinds of wires and stuff. And I had been on a heart-lung machine for eight hours, not really breathing or my heart beating for myself on a machine for eight hours. After that, I'm lying there. I can't move. I can't switch positions. Um, I have a catheter in me. Um, I can't move to the side, and my back is killing me because I can't move around, and I'm in one, one particular position. And um, I started to have hallucinations, horrible hallucinations, uh, which were <clears throat> completely terrifying. And they told me sometimes this happens when you're on one of these heart-lung machines. And um, that, a tint of that has never really gone away. And I was prone to that kind of stuff before anyhow. Anyhow, time goes on, life goes on. And a couple of weeks later, I was able to sit up and swing my legs over the side uh, and stand. And they took the catheter out. And I stumbled uh, to the bathroom. I could see myself in the mirror in the bathroom for the first time. And I looked like a wild man from the wilderness. I mean, a real madman. I mean, I hadn't shaved for a couple of weeks, and uh, I looked terrible. My kids had come in from um, from the cities they live in. They'd flown in. And um, <clears throat> one other thing that happened in the hospital, uh, this is about halfway through my stay there. I was lying there in bed. I'd better at this time. And I was lying in bed, and I, was, I felt a sort of pleasant, a pleasant sort of sliding away feeling, a kind of almost like a blissful feeling. And suddenly, I hear a lot of shouting and running around outside my room, and nurses and the doctors come running. They run in, and they gave me some kind of shot, and they did something else with some uh, electric machines, and bang, you know, and I returned to the world. And it turned out that my heart had temporarily decided not to work, atrial fibrillation. And I was um, a second or two from um, the big bye-bye, the long goodbye. That was it. I was on my way out. And yet it was this odd contradiction where I felt almost blissful, like happy to go. Not that I knew it was happening, so I'm going to, you know, like I said, uh, serenity of death. Just it felt kind of nice to sink, but I was sinking in a place, you know. Eventually, uh, the nurse came and occupational therapist. They took me for walks. I had to learn how to walk all again and... Um, I had to, uh, um, and I never did re- regain my balance, though. I mean, it took me, it took me, I was completely out of breath, and it took me a long time before I could ever walk right again, and I never have. I have never had my balance restored. I have never had my breath come back the right way, and it doesn't matter how much exercises I do. Um, and um, after about three weeks, I was, uh, I was discharged and uh, sent back to my regular life, but I never really did come back from uh, from there. I mean, I was wandering around in this dark world, literally in another world, in the other world, and I've never completely returned. And like, again, I say often, part of this is because I've always had one foot in the other world anyhow, and now I've got about two-thirds of my body in it, so it's always a struggle. Um, and right now, this would be a good place for a happy ending, right? I know, a good place for a happy ending. I should be less afraid of death after what I went through. And I should be cherishing every moment of my life from now on. But I guess it must be I just don't have the character for it. I don't, I don't have the ability to understand and appreciate um, the gift I've been given. And I keep trying all the time. One day I try all the time. One day maybe I'll 
get it, although I'm old. I hope I get it before I actually do check out. What a gift I've been given of extra life. But to me, because of all the troubles I've had and other problems I won't go into, since that thing happened to me that day, um, I don't know. It's uh, very difficult to uh, to celebrate this uh, this existence. <clears throat> and I remember uh, at one point, this is sort of a, a, a coda to the whole thing. At one point, they sent a staff psychiatrist to talk to me. And um, he was uh, from India, a very... Very nice guy. He wore kind of a flash. I bet in his late 30s, wore kind of a flashy pinstripe suit. And he was um, from India originally. And uh, he and I were talking, and he visited me a couple of times. Very intelligent, very sympathetic man. Um, we had a couple of really long visits. And uh, he. Uh, it was difficult to talk to him or to talk to anybody, as it still is for me. But then, especially, I was croaking like I'd been in the desert. I was croaking like this. Because during the operation to save my life, they had nicked a vocal cord, and it has never been the same since. And at that point, I was barely able to speak. And <clears throat> finally, he said to me after um, the last visit he was, um, he was making to me, he said, um, he said that since I had been miraculously saved from the brink of death, um, uh, what did I want most in life now? And it, all of a sudden, it was so clear to me what I wanted most in life. I thought of all the desperation and the fear that I had lived and the fear that had accompanied me waking and sleeping all of my life for very good reasons. And I told him, I want to stop grasping. I want to stop grasping. And he nodded his head. And um, that was then. And it still is this idea of stopping grasping that along with the learning, maybe just a little bit about love, how to love people, how to accept love. This is my great desire, to live my life without feeling like I have to clutch everything and everyone as if it w every moment was going to be my last. And um, every moment might be my last, but I would sure like to live without the thought and the feeling uh, that every moment's going to be my last. I would like to live without that feeling dictating every waking and sleeping moment. And that's what I uh, am dedicated to doing from this point on.
Yeah, you got to move. When it's time to go, it's time to go. Um, all right. This is Mike Fader. Uh, I'm here live on PRN every Friday from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time. If you want to get in touch with me, and that would be nice, uh, please go to my website, FaderFiles, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com. Thanks for listening. Oh!